is Existential, a podcast aimed at reminding you that it's okay to be human. We listen to human stories and human experiences, and we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. What's up, Existential? Today on the podcast is my friend, Melissa Flora Bixler, and she is a, a, a wife and pastor of a church in uh, North Carolina, uh, Mennonite Church in North Carolina. And I've just been like really like compelled by the things I've seen her say. I think if you've been listening to the podcast or watching Existential Sunday, um, you can probably gather that I'm not like, uh, I don't know how to say this. That like I'm not necessarily like uh, super compelled by a lot of what I see from Christians in America, uh, put it that way. But what I've seen from Melissa has been really like interesting and has made me like kind of lean in. And so, Melissa, thanks so much for agreeing to like come and spend a couple minutes talking to me on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Corey. It's uh, good to spend some time with you. Thanks for having me on. For sure. So, well, let's just start with like, you know, the, the, the low hanging fruit, easy question that we ask each other in society that no one really answers. Honestly, how are you? (laughs) Uh, you know, I, um, am just like getting by. I think like a lot of people are, um, this is, we have three kids virtually schooling at home and take, falling behind and, you know, can't go outside because it's cold out. So this kind of, this is like a mess. This is, this whole thing is a mess. And, um, elderly parents who, you know, are constantly in fear of getting sick. So I, I think our sort of family's anxiety is kind of replicated in a lot of places right now. I'm sure you're feeling that too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, I mean, you know, it's weird. Like we're in a global pandemic still, and I think, like, you know, there's a certain level of fatigue that I see from people. But there's also, like, a certain degree of, like, um, grief that I see from people that are just, like, this thing is still here. It's still present. But yeah. we just keep moving on as if, you know, it's not one. You know, I'll sometimes turn the TV on and I'm, like, watching sports and I'm, like, this isn't normal. Like, this is at least not our normal that we've yeah. always known that I'm watching, yeah. you know, on television. Mm-hmm. And And I think I'd love to get your thoughts on... You know, today as we're recording this, like there, this is day two of the second impeachment of of Donald Trump, and what we witnessed on January sixth was historic. Like, this will be in in our grandchildren's and great grandchildren's history books when they are learning the history of the United States. Like, how have you been processing that? Like that whole thing as it happened, and you know. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, this sort of gets back to sort of what maybe is a little bit different about our church than than other churches is we've we have a we've been sort of grieving, mourning, crying out against the Trump administration from the very beginning, um, and yeah, so we don't we don't really think about church as a place for sort of nurturing unity for the sake of unity, but. But church is, is actually supposed to be a place of refuge for people who have been battered around by the world and for people who mm-hmm. want to put their lives alongside those people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the makeup of our church. You know, we have queer folks in our church and black and brown folks in our church and um, 
someone in our church who was in ICE detention for six months because of the Trump administration. And, you know, so we've we've been really in this long sort of process of of grieving and resisting. And um, and so that, you know, I, I mean, I can say, you know, we're talking about how hard this global pandemic is. But honestly, I've slept a lot better since Donald Trump is not the president anymore. <laughs> like, I was like taking like an hour long nap every single day between the election yeah. and when the um when the inauguration happened, just sort of like I mean our our church was preparing for what it may mean to have to be a part of a global strike, you know, and uh, or I'm sorry, a, a national strike. Um mm. and so yeah, so we just are we have a sort of a, a, a more centered place around um, making space for collective, the co- collective grief that we share as a community, which has been really significant to me to nurture that for our congregation. Yeah, for sure. And so I, I get, I got to ask this question a couple of times during the Trump administration um, from Christians and, and a lot of Christians um, find themselves sort of in a middle middle ground when it came to politics, it's like, well, we're not Republican or Democrat. We're, you know, we follow the lamb, you know, not the elephant or the donkey, but the lamb. Mm-hmm. And so like, when I heard you say that you've slept a lot better since, um, you know, Trump lost the election, I'm curious as to what for you was driving the angst around having him as president. Um, you know, because for some folks, it's like I have a very personal threat that I feel. You know, mm-hmm. for me as a as a as a black male, I I, I can rem- I can remember around the election feeling a very existential threat to me and my family, mm-hmm. with the emboldening and empowering of white supremacy to have like a the commander in chief be their leader. You know, so for you, what was that like? What drove that anxiety? Um. Well, I mean, part of it is is the recognition that all oppressions are linked together in some way. So, um, so you know, there's there's a common a common threat to uh, Trump going on television and and talking about sexually assaulting women, mm. and then seventy five million people vote for him anyway, right? Like, yeah. and so there is this. So I think there there is sort of a sense of, you know, um, like like personally, like I take it personally, but but I think I even more than that, uh, more significantly than sort of the threat to women, which I think was very real, um, is that, you know, none of us is free until all of us is free. Um, and so this the the sense that there we have sort of a a, a collective response towards our towards this common liberation mm-hmm. um and I, I i absolutely believe that and so um you know i think this is what was most i i, I was in seminary when trayvon martin was murdered mm-hmm. and so that was like my formation theological formation took place just as black lives matter was emerging as a movement mm-hmm. and so those have always been deeply intertwined for me mm-hmm. uh, and so when alicia garza says the reason we talk about uplift of black people is because everybody gets uplifted once black mm-hmm. people are lifted mm-hmm. up and mm-hmm. and so being able to trace uh anti-blackness as the soil that all of these oppressions have been planted mm-hmm. in um they thrive on anti-blackness um and so i can't i i i 
always see my liberation is caught up in your liberation and um you can't you can't have one without the other do so what i'm hearing from you that is really i'm finding really interesting because of the contrast from how i how i've been viewing the vocation of pastor is that lately it seems especially in the united states that 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 role that office if you will is detached from taking anything personal Right, that like you don't have a personal dog in the fight. You don't have a connection to this, that, or the other because your home is somewhere else. But I'm hearing a real grounded, yeah, I do take this personal, what's happening to women, what's happening to people of color, what's happening to, um, you know, to, um, um, uh, gosh, to migrants in the, in the United States. Like I take this personal, like, is that kind of where your, you know, pastoral kind of operation comes from? Is personal place of yeah, I'm a human being who lives here. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it also has to do a, somewhat with the way that we, the again, the sort of oddity of of um, Mennonite ways of of just thinking about pastoral vocation, which is that we're all priests by baptism, right? So. So nobody's, um, I happen to have this particular gift for, for pastoring the church, uh, as a, as a profession. Um, but that my gift is no different or more significant than anybody else's in the congregation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm anybody in our church who's baptized can, um, pr- preside over communion. Anybody who's baptized can baptize other people. Um, uh, and we have like a, a, a strong tradition of multiple people preaching. And so when you actually begin to say, oh, I'm, you know, I, I'm not a like a, a neutral participant in this. Like mm-hmm. I, my, my skin is in the game with everybody else. Um, like we're all sort of, we're all wound up in this project of figuring out life together. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I'm. Yeah, it's, I'm I'm right in there with everybody else. Dude, I freaking love that. Golly, like that. It's so like, that's so great, man. Like this, I'm in it with you. I'm not like, I'm not removed from you. I'm not like, I don't, I'm not some super religious person that like is, has all of the answers for you. I'm in this with you trying to figure it out. I think it's amazing. Like, so I saw that you said something today on Twitter that like, that that struck me as like, all, all at the same time as like, I love it, I hate it, and like everything in between, right? When you said church should be boring, and I, I, I love how provocative of a statement it is. What did you mean when you said it? Yeah, a little boring. I don't think that should be like super boring. Just a little bit boring. Like, like, okay. You think that church should be yeah, I do think that there's, uh, yeah, it's for me, it is, it has been really helpful to take the church out of the spaces of competing for meaning in our, in the, the sort of capitalist landscape of things that you can choose to give meaning to your life. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of things that give meaning to my life that are not church, right? And that's fine. Um, you want to do soul cycle. That's right. You want to go to your, um, CrossFit. 
Um, and that's a community and that's, but I don't want to be like a thing that you have to choose from a, like, which one of these gives me the most meaning, right? I just don't think that's what, what church is for. Um, I don't think that's what church is there to do. And I think the boringness of it occasionally is just a really important signal of that for me. Mm -hmm. Um, because it means like things that I I, I, there are songs I don't like, <laughs> like, and, you know, there are, um, yeah. And there are things that, um, w- when people are new to preaching and they're not good at preaching, how mm-hmm. do you ever, how do you ever like learn to, to preach unless you have a couple bad sermons, right? Yeah. Let me preach when I was a terrible <laughs> preacher and because they loved and nurtured me and didn't like expect this performance from me. I kept going with it. Um, And so there's also just a grace to letting things be boring or like taking things out of sort of the, the level of performance or excitement that I think just opens up space for new things to happen for new people. Yeah, man. I think that is, so that's kind of the answer when I, you know, and, and for those of you listening that don't go to church, haven't been to church, don't care about church, like, you know, Sorry that we're 15, 16 minutes in and I'm just not telling you that. <laughs> but um, like I wondered about really, um, I guess I can only speak for the tradition I come out of, which is the Christian tradition, right? That how does the church do what it's supposed to do in the world while remaining underneath the umbrella of capitalism? And what you just described to me is such a beautiful picture of sort of resisting that notion. Mm-hmm. Boring is resistance to the capitalist engine, monster, tyrant that drives people to their worst selves. Mm-hmm. Like we now have a boring president. I have not. I don't know who the press secretary is right now. <laughs> like five minutes into the Trump uh you know, administration. And I knew everyone's name because they were so dramatic and they were so toxic and they were so like must see television. Yeah. Yeah. So to have, uh, to, to have like church be in every way resistant to that by saying, don't come here for a show. We're not competing with the church down the street. We're not competing with your soul cycle. We're not competing with hot yoga. We're just here as a community that's here to do some things. And we want you to join us in that. I think that's, I think that's incredible. Can you, um, for my sake, you know, as if like I'm Michael Scott and you're Oscar explain Mm -hmm. Mennonite to me as if like I'm an 11 year old that has never heard of Mennonite before because I I hadn't prior Mm -hmm. to like interacting with you. Yeah. Well, actually I take it back. I did it. I did know Mennonite from the office because it was a Mennonite minister that married, um, uh, Dwight and Angela. Yeah, which is so classic, right? And um, yeah, so I mean, people, uh, you know, it's like like a buggy in a bonnet, or like oftentimes the first things people think about with Mennonites, like plain Mennonites. Um, and that's, I mean, that's legit. I I I totally understand that. Um, there's a lot of Amish romance novels out there that Mennonites very close to the Amish. So like, if that's where you're coming in, that's fine. But we can start with that. Um, <laughs> so that is that is a relation that is a relationship. Yeah, yeah. So okay. Anabaptist was it, it was um, a pejorative name given to. It's basically we we picked the name that our enemies gave us, which was rebaptizers. Um, oh. So it was like. 
Um, is there cursing allowed on this podcast? Uh, are you kidding? You assholes, you know, okay. And it's like, okay. So let's call it, you know what? That actually fits. Like, let's just call ourselves the church of assholes from now on. Oh, <laughs> so wow. like, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so we picked up this really pejorative name and just kept calling ourselves this for some reason. Um, but it, it really was uh, the, Mennonite church emerged from the radical reformation, which is a break off of the, like the Lutheran reformation and the Zwinglian reformation. Mm -hmm. And really basically what they thought is that the reformation didn't push far enough. Um, and that if you were really going to be serious about like reforming the church, you had to take the Jesus stuff seriously, including like actually not killing people, um, like not creating new Lutheran armies and new Lutheran states to combat the Catholic church and the Catholic state and the Catholic armies. You just like had to not do that anymore. So Mennonites are pacifists is a pretty big part of our tradition. Um, And the Anabaptist part came because at that, at that time there was only infant baptism and, um, but the church and the state were the same. So by being baptized into uh, the Catholic Church, you were actually being baptized as a as a citizen as well. Like it, it puts you on the tax rolls, um, and so there was this deep intertwining of church and state. Which also, Anabaptists were like, Jesus did not come like to to rule in power through the state, through the sword, through tax, through taxation. So if you're going to be if you're going to be a part of this, like you have to be a part of this like radically different community that's going to resist the sort of like forms of all kinds of forms of violence that happen in our world. Um, and you have to make that decision uncoerced, um, not because wow. your parents put you up to it or because like you happen to be born into this Christian family, but you've got to say like, no, I'm, I'm in, I'm in this, like, because it's like a big deal. Like you could die. <laughs> so like, wow. Um, so yeah. some other things that kind of, that went along with that, but, um, yeah, Anabaptists went on to be, as you can imagine, deeply persecuted, um, just drowned by the thousands, burned at the stake, um, mm. driven underground, um, kept moving around looking for other um, places in Europe that they could live without persecution. It was pretty hard. Um, and eventually sort of emigrated to different parts of the world and found safety like a lot of people did in the U.S. Um, mm. in Canada. Um, which is, of course, like a lot of Europeans where the story of whiteness enters into the the Mennonite church. And so a lot of us in the Mennonite church now ask, you know, how um, how is the, the sort of radical Reformation um, intensity been overtaken by um, our primary identity in, in whiteness for those of us who are white? Mm. There's lots of other kinds of Mennonites, too. There's Garifuna Mennonite churches historically black Mennonite churches in, in Cleveland and Philadelphia, Korean Mennonite churches. So it's becoming like a lot of churches, a more diverse uh, congregation. Wow, that's super. I'm, I'm super interested in the, in the pacifism and the, the like embodiment of another way of being to resist the state, you know, is what I'm hearing. There's some yeah. of that, like, um, you know, and I know that I know with the second and third century church that like those sort of house churches that were, forming that they you couldn't be a part of that community if you were a soldier right um you had to sort of lay down your arms to be a part of that and and i, I love the the notion of sort of recapturing 
a way of being in the world as a faith-based community that is subversive to some of the violent and, you know, really oppressive norms that we find in society. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, that's pretty dope. I mean, I, I, I want to, I want to read something because, uh, the reason, one of the main reasons other than like this kind of following you, your work for a while that I wanted to have you on the podcast was some answer that you gave to the question that I asked about what is church. And I like, I forwarded your answer, by the way, to like a hundred people. <laughs> I was just like, this is like, it was so refreshing to me to like yeah. hear someone like talk about what the church is in, in this way. And here's, I just want to read what you said. It's a little bit lengthy. I mean, you know what you said, but those that don't know, it's a little bit lengthy. It's, um, so I asked, you know, what is it that the church does? And I asked if people not be skeptical um, or cynical that they just express it. And you said, I don't know about the church uh, in quotes, just my church. We are a refuge and a place to heal from spiritual trauma for LBGTQ people. We give zero interest loans to thwart the system of usury that ruins people's lives. We are part of a, a, a broad-based organizing network that lets us build collective power towards a people's agenda. We do a lot with people in prison, and we work towards the end of prisons through bailout support and uh, decarceration advocacy. We bury the dead. We support people when they are in recovery and pick them up uh, when they are out of recovery. We discern difficult choices about our work our politics, our advocacy, our families, and what we need to abolish in our lives in order to follow Jesus. We raise money to get people out of ICE detention. We fail miserably sometimes and create the structure for mutual admonition and reparation, and we eat together. And like, <laughs> it's just like, okay, first of all, I love the eat together part because that's such a huge part of like, of what spiritual community has been for a long time. You know, com mm -hmm. communion kind of got commercialized at some point and became like a a token thing instead of a community thing where you eat together. Yep. But all that other stuff is so like such a modern uh, representation of the core principle. I think the the stuff that's redeemable and good about faith and spirituality, like what is the force, the thing, the inertia that like causes that to be, how you and the community that you're part of operates? Well, I think that, you know, we do have, we do have a few things going for us um, as Mennonites that, that opened up some space for us to think about uh, it in sort of separation from the world is what they would have called it in the 16th century. But this real sense that we have, um, the the responsibility to to carve out different ways of being and 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 resist the sort of patterns of things that we are sort of signed up for without sorry, our consent. So we had that going for us. Um, another thing going for us is that we we're just a congregation that doesn't own a building, um, and we're committed to that to to not owning property. Um, and so we just have we can do more things with our money because of that. Um, mm. And I think that also means that f and why the pandemic was slightly less traumatizing for our congregation is we've never had like a, <laughs> like we've always been like something outside of our building. Like yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. even when we've rented places for a long time, it was very clear that we were like renters there. Um, 
And so, and then we're non-hierarchical. Um, we make decisions through consensus. Um, mm -hmm. We don't, we don't have like a church council or a vestry that makes decisions and lets everybody knows, you know, kind of what's going on or vote for people. Um, so we sort of had this, we had like a, like a good setup already to begin asking these questions of ourselves and sort of letting, like letting these things sort of emerge. Um, and so we can, we just have the ability to act on things in ways that, um, and some of the resources to do it that maybe other congregations have, have may have put themselves in a, in a bind in that way. Um, so the, our 0% interest program, um, we just kind of came to this conviction that um, that paying in asking people to pay interest is this um, like it enslaves people to like debt sometimes for the rest of their lives, mm -hmm. and this is a system that is is racially biased. It is. Um, it prevent it stops people's futures. We've seen it like impact people's relationships because you know, am I really gonna like like commit to this person who is a hundred thousand dollars in the lows? Like like these are serious questions people mm. ask now, mm. um, and we just refuse. I think it's like refusal to let people live that way. And so what we do is we just have a fund, and if somebody has a high interest loan. We just give them the money to pay it back, and then they pay the church back interest-free, and then that money just goes on to someone else. So it is sort of this a very simple, like so basic way to like um, just cut off this system at the knees. And I take absolute delight in it. Like I like to be able to just throw a few punches at the system and land a few is just on it, just so so joyful for me yeah, oh, yeah. this system so much yeah dude i mean like it's so liberating to to, to like you know like I, I when trump lost the election or biden won however you look at it i don't doesn't matter like it was kind of if i know that the little bit that i said or did was a infantile like very small portion of what yeah. what but that small portion felt very good yeah you know and i think mm -hmm. to like to be um a part of a spiritual community that is taking jabs as you said at like hierarchy and um at, at this system that we're part of that continues to this caste system Quite frankly, that continues to marginalize and crush and destroy families and human beings and generations, really. Like, as people of faith, people who take spirituality seriously, I just can't imagine anything else that we should be doing. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, when I listen to you talk, I'm like, what are the other churches doing? Like, what, like, I don't mean to even be like, you guys all suck, but it's just almost like, like, what, because this is where my question came from, was like, you know, I, I'm watching these churches on social media and that they're doing series on this and on that and the other, and they're doing these all these activities, and you're looking at, like, how much it must cost to do these things. And there's a, a pastor who filled his stage with water and rain and all this other kind of, all these other theatrics, and you're like, okay, for what? Mm -hmm. You know? And yeah. I think, like, hearing you talk about what y'all are doing is just super, like, I don't know, refreshing to me. Yeah. No, I'm yeah. good. 
yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it feels very obvious. Like you said, like, I, like what else would we be doing with our time? Um, <laughs> if not to, you know, try to cut the system off at the knees and resist it in whatever ways we can. I mean, I think, you know, we, there's a, like the, the way, the other thing that's really great about churches doing this is that, you know, the power of these systems is they learn, they learn how to incorporate even your resistance to them into back into the system. And so you have to learn to resist again, right? So there's always that. And so when you have a community of people who's just continually aware of what's happening, that is in a constant sort of conversation of discernment and paying attention to the world around us, you actually have um, this sustained life um, of of looking for ways to... um, yeah, to get to get people out of these systems to help to to transform them in some way, knowing that this work is never complete, right? It's always like like a piece of this. But if we're all doing it, it like you said, it just it it actually makes a really big difference. Yeah, man. So I mean, you're gathering people. So when you gather people, there's just a bunch of there's just naturally the human shit that shows up. It's like okay, we oh, have yeah. to address that. And so in your definition of what church does, or at least what your church does there was this component of wrestling and and like sort of um, turning the jewel, if you will, when it comes to how you're oriented. How does that work? Like how, how has that been? And, and, and what do you do when conflict shows up within your community and, and, and dealing with, I mean, do you wind up with bad faith actors? Because one of the things that like a lot of the, the churches, sort of mainstream larger evangelical churches have dealt with, those that have tiptoed into race finally after a hundred years, mm-hmm. like they're like, you know, they're like, Oh, these people, we lost this many people from our church because we decided to take a stand on X, Y, and Z. Like, do you run into anything like that? Or is it just kind of like, because of the way that you're operating, it's few and far between. Yeah. I mean, this is the other thing that's, that's helpful about having a church that's, and this is why we're always going to be small, right? Yeah. Because because the the kind of life that we're cultivating, it demands something of you, right? Like we're asking you to give your money to somebody who's to somebody's student loans, like like so all of these sort of whatever you know we're say, having these like oh like I paid off my student loans, why shouldn't you pay off your student loans? Like <laughs> even if that sentiment is present in our congregations, like doesn't matter. Like, this is just, you know, this is like what we've discerned is the thing that we need to do at this moment. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, so I just, I think there's also, um, <laughs> I do think that one of the, one of the parts maybe also of being Mennonite that can be really problematic sometimes, but is actually probably helpful in this area is that this history of martyrdom that we have, mm-hmm. um, in like uh, in pastoral ministry, I never think like, oh, I like I'm always like ready to lose my job, right? Like I'm, it, it's always certainly um, I would rather have this church close than for us not to be faithful to the call of God in our lives. I have no problem. Like churches come and go, 
right? Like, um, they're, you know, they, they rise up in one place, they go away in another, um, especially when they're churches that don't fit into the dominant narrative of history's winners, of, of Christian history's winners. All those little, like, resistance groups around the edges eventually get wiped out or overwhelmed or um, die out because, like, the, it's, too, it's too radical, it's too much. I assume that that's what my church is. Like, um, that's just, that's, that's my starting assumption is that's where we're going. Um, and I am perfectly fine with that, that kind of faithfulness. I believe you. And that's like, like I say that, like, you know, I I don't know. I mean, as if I would say you're lying, (laughs) like, but I just, I believe you when, because to be honest with you, Melissa, I think you're the first pastor I've ever heard say that. Like that, and I'm like, I don't know when this podcast is even going to come out. I'm like, I want to tweet that now. Like, I'm just like, like that, that I would rather have the doors closed than to not be faithful to what we feel the spirit leading us to do. I just like, I know that. I, there are pastors listening who will say, well, Corey, I'd say the same thing. And maybe you would, but I just haven't heard you say it. And I like, I just, it's, it is such, that's such a profound statement to me. It is such a big deal. And it's, it's even greater than um, just church or any religious community. It's, it's any institution that's lost its way, whether it's policing or, or education or criminal justice system or politics. Like there's such a rarity of people who have any, small degree of power saying I'd rather not have the power and the influence than for that power and influence to wind up being oppressive to any person. Yeah. I, I, I just appreciate that. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I know you got to go. Yeah. I'm, I'm bummed that we can't keep talking for another like hour, but yeah. I know you got to go, but I appreciate you taking the time to come by and, and share your story with us and, and what you, what you're doing. It's, it's incredible. Is there anything like any way people can stay in touch with you, anything you have going on that you want to like, tell folks before, before we go. Sure. You can follow me on Twitter. Um, I just look me up by my name and, um, I have a book coming out. Did you know that? Yeah. I, I think I saw something about that, but wasn't yeah. sure. That's awesome. Yeah. In July, how to have an enemy, uh, about <sighs> how we think about like anger and enmity and unity and the performative nature of unity in the church and, what it means to actually do a power analysis and what kind of, who is the Jesus we actually say we're uniting ourselves around all informed by the black radical tradition, which is the tradition I was formed in. Oh shit. I like, so listen, when that book comes out, I can't wait to read it. I want want to have you come back on the podcast when that book comes out so we can talk about it. I love it. Um, Yeah. Thanks so much. And guys, I'll put everything in the show notes so you can stay in touch with Melissa uh, I'd like to say thank you to all of you who listen to the podcast. If you're a part of the Patreon community, um, maybe we can have Melissa come and join the conversation we had about enemies because I wish I'd have known then that she was doing that, but I didn't. But thank you to all of you who are listening. Thank you to the Patreon community. Thank you for everyone who's rated and reviewed the podcast. And thank you for all of you helping us to contend for a better world, one conversation at a time. Grace and peace until next time.